scientists should thrive on ambiguity and uncertainty. Without it, we are doing engineering. Not that engineering is bad, but it's different from science. Science is an activity inherently that puts you in an ambiguous and an uncertain situation. You are looking in an, to pave a, a path that first and foremost, you do not know where it leads. And if you are even more daring, not to follow a path that others have created, but to go to a completely uncharted area and to ask whatever big questions you are asking, you are interested in asking. And I believe that this is not the characteristics of a scientist or a scientist alone. This should be the characteristics of every intellectual in our society to be not only comfortable but thriving and seeking to be in ambiguous and uncertain situation. Ask any martial artist. It's not just where a person strikes you, but your stance that matters. The amplitude and angle of a blow is one thing, but how you can absorb and or deflect it makes the difference. The same is true in any evolutionary system. Most people seem to know the butterfly effect where tiny changes lead to large results, but the inverse also works complex organisms buffer their development against adverse mutations so that tiny changes cannot redirect the growth of limbs or other organs. It takes a lot to shake the pattern of five fingers on a hand or five toes on a paw. This is robustness. How much change can something soak up before it transforms? The question leads us into a secret garden of cryptic variation, mutations waiting for their moment pieces sitting in place that might suddenly and radically metamorphose in changing circumstances. It's why evolution stutters, halts, and leaps. And maybe it can help us think about society and mind in ways that deepen comprehension of the tangled and surprising forces playing out at all scales in society and in ecology. For quests as deep as these, we need to wear new lenses and train inquiries stereoscopically. How can and do the sciences and humanities inform each other as we keep evolving, not just biologically, but culturally? Can we triangulate the truth by holding theories side by side and looking through them all together? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we speak with Aviv Bergman, external professor of the Santa Fe Institute and director of the new Albert Einstein Institute for Advanced Study in the Life Sciences. Be sure to check out our extensive show notes 
with links to all our references at complexity.simplecast.com. And note that our applications for SFI postdoctoral fellowships open on August 1st. Tell a friend. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Aviv Bergman, such a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Even though I'm not used to be the focus of attention, I think uh, this makes me a bit nervous. So, Well, yeah, no reason to be nervous. I loved the presentation that you gave here. I love your the writing that you did on your new institute. I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. So let's start first by giving people a little bit of a background into your own intellectual biography, um, you as a mind and the questions that animated you, that how did you become a scientist? What is your backstory? And then we'll lead from that into the meat of today's conversation. Well, it really is an unanswerable question for me. I was born and raised in Tel Aviv, coming from a modest socioeconomic background, but I was lucky to live in an area of Tel Aviv where both physical and era where education and knowledge were highly valued. I grew up in a, as I said, affluent area coming from a modest background and uh, I strive to be as knowledgeable as possible in very specific areas not necessarily the humanities, but mainly the sciences and the math aspect of uh, my studies. And uh, I arrived at a relatively early age at the Technion, and from there moved to the Weizmann Institute, then served in the army, was part of the Yom Kippur War, the 73 war, as well as the first Lebanon war. And uh, then I was recruited to few think tanks or research companies within Israel. And uh, there was a moment where I received the offer I could not refuse from the Stanford Research Institute, the AI and Robotics Lab, that attracted me to the US, which uh, I promised my wife that it will be four years. And this was in 1985. And then many things have happened. I was part of think tank that Paul Allen created, then moved with quite a bit of support from his foundation uh, back to Stanford, where I created what is now kind of be considered the first systems biology group. So my first education was in physics and uh, high-energy physics, uh, theoretical physics. And when I arrived at uh, Stanford Research Institute, I was recruited as a research physicist and then uh, very quickly decided to switch to biology. This was in the mid-80s, where I was also being introduced to the Santa Fe Institute. So I started to be involved with the activities here since uh, 
me to late uh, 1895, so it's quite some time ago. But again, my foyer towards biology was a fairly easy walk in the park for me because I never entered the lab during my PhD in biology. It was uh, uh, purely theoretical, and I was asking a question that bordered on philosophy, which was, why do we need to learn? Later on, I switched the questions into, why do we need to communicate? And uh, the questions remains, the questions that I'm asking in biology remains relatively high-level questions. With that background, I must uh, say one caveat, which is whatever I'm going to say here or whatever I've done in the past is uh, something that uh, not only my work, but most scientific work is going to be antiquated in 5, 10, 15 years from now. So please take whatever I'm saying with a grain of salt. Well, I mean, for sure, we treat this show, treat these episodes as snapshots into a process of discovery. And I definitely want to loop back around to that point, because in the last act of this conversation, I want to talk with you a little bit about your manifesto for the new institute. You know, you talk a lot about the overturning and the revolutionary component of science. But first, I want to get into what it is that we overturn, right? Which is how and why do stable forms evolve, even under conditions where there is no strong selective pressure? And so, for that, I want to talk about this piece that you uh, co authored with Mark Siegel on. Waddington's Canalization Revisited Developmental Stability and Evolution. But to start, we should give the background of that. What is canalization? Uh, what is the history of thinking that you lay out in the introduction to this paper so that we can understand where your work builds on, refines, and, and challenges what has come before? Mm-hmm. So yeah, tell me about canalization. Canalization or buffering or robustness, these terms are going to be used in this conversation uh, interchangeably. First and foremost, I would like to credit my collaborations with Mark Siegel, who is now a professor at uh, NYU for this work. At that time that we did that, this was uh, almost uh, two decades ago, Mark was a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford and part of my center there. And uh, he was an experimental biologist for whom I ran. And I used to work as an undergrad, practically running the lab. So this is how I got my real education in biology. But nevertheless, robustness canalization is a concept that was introduced by Waddington in the 30s and the 40s, which is a concept where the observed phenotype is by far more robust to underlying perturbation at the genetic level. Namely, everything which is at the genetic level, when percolate to the phenotypic space, the underlying variation, which is about, let's say, six per thousand base pair between any two randomly chosen individual, is not expressed at the phenotypic level. So most of us have 
five fingers, two eyes, etc. Granted, there are developmental aberrations, but they are by far less frequent than what it is that we have at the underlying genetic level that brings about these phenotypes. Now, the theory that Waddington postulated is that if there is a genetic mechanism that will buffer, that will canalize the expression of the genes, the variation in the expression of the genes when they are mapped to the phenotypic level in such a way that it will not interfere with the phenotypic expression and the phenotypes that is let's say, good for us is the five-finger phenotype, any mechanism that buffer this variation is going to be selected for. Now, what we have done in this piece of work, revisiting his canalization hypothesis, is to challenge the idea that uh, there is a need for natural selection to operate and to percolate from the phenotypic level all the way down to the genetic mechanism that brings about this phenotype, the phenotype which is presumably under selection. And we have demonstrated that there is no need for uh, such natural selection for five fingers, stabilizing selection for five fingers. So for people that aren't used to thinking in these terms, I'd like to posit an analogy here, see what you think of this. It, you know, it strikes me that this work has a lot to do with Melanie Mitchell's work in artificial intelligence and the development of concepts and of the generalizability of an idea learned in one domain to another domain. Or, you know, for people that come out of a philosophical background, you know, this has to do with, it sounds to me like this notion of there being a sort of a form of a dog. There's all of this variation that we still recognize that this object is a dog. Or, you know, you think about Helena Maton's work on the evolution of writing systems and how much variance you get in the typography. You know, you can say, oh, that's still the letter B. That there is that B-ness or dogness is robust. I feel like we're going to be jumping around between levels a lot in uh -huh. this conversation, because even though in this work you make the case that this is happening without stabilizing selection at the evolutionary timescale, this does strengthen an argument that selection is happening across multiple different spatiotemporal scales, right? Absolutely. No, I'm not against selection whatsoever. I'm Darwinian through and through even though we can go into a more deeply philosophical question about what was the inadvertent aspect of Darwinian theory in biological thinking is, but you are absolutely right, is the analogy would be kind of buffering noise to arrive at a concept. With that said, the robustness aspect might be thought of as hindering the process of evolution, because evolutionary selection pressure operates at the phenotypic level. And if phenotypes are being kind of remain constant, independent of the underlying genetic variation, natural selection has no variation to select from. However, 
at the time of stress, and this is where we deviate from this analogy a little bit, it is not necessarily considered as noise, because this underlying variation at time of stress is going to be expressed at the phenotypic level, enabling evolution actually to accelerate its process at time of stress because the underlying accumulated cryptic variation under normal conditions is going to be expressed at the phenotypic level and then pff, evolution. Now it's process and accelerate it. And this is also part of the studies that we have done to demonstrate that the cryptic variation has a role when time of stress is present. So this rhymes very strongly with a theme that has come up on the show again and again, which I like to encapsulate in the pithy statement by gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson, who said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. That to look at it in terms of more like, you know, human social concerns, that there's always a reservoir of neurodivergence in populations as a kind of bet hedging against exactly. different environments. For instance, balances between specialists and generalists, which you know David Krakauer and I discussed in episode 29, and then as an environment becomes more and more unstable, then the generalists that were punished in a stable regime end up turning pro. And you know you get things like Lystrosaurus, which was this super generalist, almost the only thing that survived the Permian mass extinction. Yeah. Yes, there are many examples of that, and uh, there is another piece of work uh, that was done by Joanna Maisel and myself while she was a postdoc again at Stanford with Mark Feldman, where we demonstrated that prion in yeast, even though deleterious to you, now the way they operate is by running through stop codon generated no, arbitrary proteins. And what she has demonstrated is that even if it is giving you a benefit of one per million years, these prion will evolve and fixate in the population. So even though it is deleterious, quote unquote, under normal condition, when time of stress comes, all of a sudden we have a repertoire of proteins that are going to be beneficial for the yeast. So this idea of accumulation of cryptic genetic variation probably is something which is prevalent in biological systems. Not to spoil the climax of this episode, but I do also want to just call that shot and say that this reminded me of Thomas Kuhn's work on scientific revolutions and how you get cryptic variation in the paradigm as certain researchers are more or less attuned to anomalous evidence. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at some point there's a catastrophic shift of some kind and you get paradigm shift. Type yeah, of things, yeah, yeah. But first I want to get into the way that you're actually thinking about this in terms of the phenotypic fidelity and pliancy, as you discuss it in your work on development in an organism. And just talk about how you actually see this unpacking itself. You talk about genetic capacitors, and you go into a considerable amount of detail on another paper with Mark Siegel on this evolutionary capacitance as a general feature of complex gene networks. And so what is it about the 
structure and the behavior of these networks that's doing what you're saying? What we asked for, what are the causes and the consequences of the evolution of robustness? In this paper on evolutionary capacitance, we discuss the hypothesis by Sue Lindquist and Susan Rutherford that claimed that HSP90, for example, in Drosophila, is an evolutionary capacitance which is unique and evolved for that particular property. And what we have demonstrated, as I said, with the work about Waddington, is that we do not need natural selection or stabilizing selection to evolve robustness. In a secondary piece of work, again with Mark Siegel, what we showed is that it is sufficient to have a complex genotype-phenotype mapping in order to arrive at a robust system to sensitivity. So it is a property of a complex gene regulatory network and not necessarily a specific gene such as HSP90. HSP90 may be one of family of possible mechanism by which one can achieve robustness. And the one that we have looked at is the fact that it is, as I said, sufficient to have a genotype-phenotype map which is complex to harbor genetic variation. And the more complexities, and complexity in, in our measure or in this particular work was the amount of interactions that are present in a gene regulatory network, the higher it is, the more capable the system is to harbor this uh, cryptic variation. And as we said in the paper, which was later cited as uh, one of the evolutionary gems, it is kind of an unavoidable consequence of genotype-phenotype map that as a result you get robust phenotype to underlying variation. So just because this is where <laughs> I, I tend to, the attractor into which my exactly. thoughts run in these conversations. I'm, it is an attractor. Yes, we're getting kind of meta here, but my analogies, I think, are sort of robust to perturbations in the environmental variation of our conversations on this show. <laughs> um, but, you know, something that comes up again and again for me in thinking about stuff like this, and I'm curious what you think about this, is the robustness of organizations to change and how, you know, an organization can be largely comprised of quote-unquote mutants that want some sort of systemic change, and yet there is a tension between the agency and the desires of the individuals that constitute an organization or a society, and the phenotype and the agency of the entire organization. So you end up with these things like, I guess one example might be the hippies going square, right? That like everybody had these aspirational hopes that they were going to be able to change society. And, you know, just the quote unquote long arc of history takes an incredibly long time to bend in a generations and generations to bend in a different direction. So I'm curious, yeah, your thoughts on that kind of analogy, because that, again, that's kind of foreshadowing the conversation I want to have with you at the end of this about the formation of new academic projects and so on. 
Yeah, there is an interesting uh, interplay between development of an organization, of a you know, biological organization, and its evolution. So just going back for a second to Waddington, he was the first one to recognize that when we study evolution, we neglect development. And he was the first one to indicate that such a thing is required. And this is what we have done in our work. But what I wanted to bring about is to go back for a second to evolution without necessarily focusing on the development aspect. In evolution, there are few modes. There is the kind of gradual mode that Darwin was talking about uh, when he described the process of slow accumulated mutations that brings us to the hill on one hand. And uh, in contrast to that, we have the Eldridge and Gould type of evolutionary process, which is a punctuated process. Now, the punctuated process is not working in a vacuum. It works where you have underlying genetic variation accumulated, and there are moments in which there is enough of those to arrive at the point where the entire population is being shifted into a very dramatic different phenotypic characteristics. So there are many ways, again, to explain this phenomena. There was the shifting balance theory by civil rights that was introduced in the 1930s, later been used as a mechanism to explain punctuated equilibrium. But again, what we have demonstrated we, is that there is nothing new under sun. It, this is a simple stochastic process that is the interplay between the size of the population and the mutation rate that can cause, for example, this shift from one phenotype to another phenotype. And this goes to society. There was an interesting uh, student at Stanford, I forgot his name. He was a political theorist who studied Mount Temple in Israel, and specifically the moment where the change of direction in Islam was from Jerusalem to Mecca. And uh, it was a moment where the idea came from uh, disciples of uh, Muhammad and uh, they approached him to suggest that possibility. And uh, he probably knew more than anybody else about human behavior at that time. And uh, what he did was uh, assemble a large group of people, and at the middle of the prayer, he switched the direction himself, the rest of the crowd follow, and the rest is history. This is kind of a punctuated phenotypic characteristics at a global level that change something uh, culturally very, very dramatically. Yeah, I guess the other example, I mean, uh, examples abound here, right? You know, the other one is, was it Sweden that on the same day they had everyone starting to drive on the opposite side of the street, you know, <laughs> or another one that a little closer to home here at SFI is I remember and love and constantly reference 
this talk that Simon Dedeo gave here a few years ago on if you think about mathematical proofs not as a linear series of premises that build upon each other, but as a network of you know postulates mm-hmm. or, or arguments that you can basically kick a good number of legs out from under that table without knocking over the actual proof. But then, you know, it gets interesting because then, you know, if you're using a network analysis, you can kind of figure out in the same way that you figure out who is the person capable of changing the cardinality of prayer or, you know, getting everyone out onto the dance floor. You know, you can identify what Bucky Fuller called the trim tabs, the what are the points of leverage to think in Danella Meadows terms. So in passing, you mentioned in Waddington Revisited that there are times when decanalization occurs, when the entrenchment, like I don't know, you think about like a flood washing out a terrain and you lose the characteristics of memory as it's encoded in the landscape. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that and like the resetting of the playing table, as it were. This touches a little bit about uh, more recent work we have done with respect to the breakdown of robustness. When does robustness break? Now, there are two types of, or there are many types of robustness, but the one that uh, we are focusing on, or we have focused in the latest work on, was the link between, or the decoupling between genetic robustness and environmental robustness. In a single-cell organism, it has been demonstrated that when you evolve genetic robustness, as a side effect, you evolve insensitivity to environmental variation and vice versa. Namely, when you have an environment, you evolve for insensitivity to environmental variation. As a side effect, you end up with insensitivity to genetic variation. And this gives kind of a question mark as to the evolution of multicellularity. Namely, how can cell that compose of the exact identical set of genes uh, in every organs uh, in our body end up with a differentiated and completely different cell type having exactly the same genotype. So we did uh, a little bit of work on how to decouple genetic from environmental variation. And um, we looked at uh, complex called the polycom complex, which was discovered uh, quite some time ago in Drosophila, which is a mechanism by which you can quote-unquote think about it as a mechanism that dynamically carve the system during development. And um, if a cell experiences a particular environment, during development before certain critical time point, a cell that experiences that specific environment will develop into a specific cell type, one cell type, while if it were to experience a different environmental condition, external environmental condition, the same cell with the same genotype will end up with a very different phenotypic characteristics. Now, From there on, those two different cell types 
will beget the same cell types again and again and again. So a skin cell will beget skin cell, a liver cell will beget liver cell, and so on and so forth. Now imagine what happened if that polycomb mechanism that ensure the fidelity of the cell type is broken. The cell becomes juvenile, namely it is influenced by its neighbors, and it can assume all possible phenotypes that are imposed upon him as a condition of the environmental conditions. So it is not flattening the map, but it rather opening the possibility of tunneling practically, you know, to use physical term, between phenotypes without the need to go back to a much primitive quote-unquote state like a stem cell state or pluripotent stem cell condition where the cell possesses in itself the possibility of differentiate into all those possible genotypes. So it is not flattening the map, but enabling the phenotypic landscape to be accessible from any point to any other point. Okay, so, you know, correct me if I'm getting anything wrong in this, but again, you know, the someone broke the handle off on, you know, analogies. So first of all, there was a paper that came out a few years ago, reported in Science Advances, but then covered in Quanta, and a few of our people, Jess Flack and Albert Cow, commented on this research led by Neil Johnson at George Washington University. The article was Smarter Parts Make Collective Systems Too Stubborn. And it was about this balance between the, not smarter per se, but nodes in a network with a longer memory being resistant to the propagation of changes across the network. And so there's a big conversation at SFI about the balance between biological inheritance and cultural inheritance and how, you know, now that we live in this modern era where culture seems to have taken over in some ways that this is where I worry I'm getting this wrong. It seems almost like there's a bias for each of us as individuals towards like amnesia the environment is changing much more rapidly because culture can propagate horizontally. It doesn't require an evolutionary timescale in the way that we are talking about this. And so, you know, you get people that are storing all of their memory outboard and you go to Google for everything. And so, you know, each of us as individuals that are depending more and more on the storage of memory in the environment, are somehow losing our definition as people. And there's all of these associated concerns about challenges to the accumulation of expertise. And I know you've written on that, but like, I guess generally, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, throughout history, people have been criticized for not having a kind of a core in different cultures that they don't have a strong, stable identity. And if you look at attachment traumas in human ego development, you know, things that come from a very, very unreliable environment in early childhood specifically, that you get all of these sort of ego development disorders, you know, people that in a way sound like the metastatic cells that you're talking about that change and they can move from one environment to the other, but then you don't actually have any sort of 
continuity of character from one setting to another. The latter example that you gave is closer. When it comes to culture, I think the gap between the genetic level that I'm talking about and the cultural level that uh, you have mentioned is uh, similar to what uh, Muri Gilman once uh, whimsically said, uh, that if particles could think physics would have been by far more difficult, I would make the analogy of the genetic level to physics and the behavioral level to biology. But your point about losing the ability to commit to a particular phenotype as a mechanism that is somewhat broken, namely the commitment mechanism is broken, is correct analogy. Yeah, so it's not the stem cell pluripotent thing, but there is something in that about the criticism of like uh, people with a Peter Pan syndrome, people who refuse to settle down, who refuse to commit. And this is interesting because as pertains to comments about how all of this influences connectivity of regulatory networks, I think a lot about the work of people like Ricardo Hausman at SFI, mm -hmm. who are very strong proponents of a very, very mobile global economic situation. You know, lots of cultural interchange, lots of the migration, the reallocation of people and know-how between nations. And I brought this up with him when he was recently on the show with Dwayne Farmer for the Emergent Political Economies series that, you know, there's the and yet, right, that we all experienced in the last few years with COVID and the fact that you get beyond a certain point and hyperconnectivity undermines everything. So I'm curious about, yeah, again, like yeah. how this shapes your thinking on the upper and lower bounds of all of that. No, you're absolutely right. There is a upper bound to what uh, extreme connectivity can do to you, at least in biology. So as I was saying earlier, the polycom-like mechanism is a mechanism by which the entirety of the gene regulatory network during development is carved into a smaller segment, shunting certain part of the network from being active while activating others, depending on the, this mechanism of polycom-like commitment mechanism. And when broken, all of a sudden, the entirety of the network is capable of being interacting with one another making it possible, as I said, to assume all possible phenotypes. And this is our hypothesis of the transition that cell that have been originated in one environment can go through multitude of foreign environments, foreign to the origin, to the environment in which this cell was originated, and still not only survive, but when arriving at a secondary or a tertiary site, can thrive. And I do not think that anybody in the audience who listened to that would think of cancer or metastatic cancer as a positive thing. So from the cell point of view, it is a positive thing. But from the organismal point of view, it is deleterious. It is very harmful to you. So I'd like to raise an unpleasant 
inquiry, which kind of comes up on this show a lot ever since I saw John Pepper speak at SFI a few years ago on cancer and metabolism. And (laughs) many, many people have drawn this correlation between the way that cancer is able to hack its way into acquiring additional resources from the body and its glucose intense metabolism with innovations in the origin of the modern human in uh, cooking and then in, in later in fossil fuels and so on and how every innovation we've had in energy technology and in the augmentation of our own metabolism has allowed us to spread over the surface of the planet and become this extreme super invasive species and reshape everything again like to our own benefit but again to the increasing destabilization of our ecosystemic base so again do you think that first of all is that i guess like justifiable and then second of all do you think that your work provides a kind of intuition or the possibility of steering research into understanding what the actual limits are to the degree to which we can exploit ecological resources as you said this is an unpleasant fact Uh, on one hand on the other hand I would not dare to assume that my work can uh, (laughs) be scaled to such a level. With that said, there is yet another interesting observation, which is very much related to that. The fact that we have only one reward mechanism, which is dopamine. And if we get addicted to this energy consumption, we will have to deal with this process of suppressing the reward mechanism. But this reward mechanism is extremely deleterious to us when we become addicted to whatever it is on one hand. On the other hand, it what evolution created, quote-unquote, in order for us to survive. We need that mechanism to know when we are thirsty, when we need food, etc. So there is a very interesting balance between uh, the misuse of one evolutionary process levels when we are abusing it. But this is something that you can edit out. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be editing a lot of my own stuff out of this. So in passing here, because I, I, I do want to get to the work on the Albert Einstein Institute for Advanced Study in the Life Sciences. But on the way there, we were talking the other day at lunch, and, and you brought up a paper that you wrote with uh, Arturo Casadeval. Arturo Casadeval, yeah. Casadeval, yeah. He is now at uh, uh, John Hopkins University. Yeah, so in again, just a sort of like a loose analogy here, in thinking on upper and lower bounds, the paper that you wrote together on mammalian endothermy and the trade-off between the metabolic trade-off going on there and you know what you think. So could you give a little bit about just a little background on, on this paper and, and the question that you're asking about the susceptibility of mammals to fungal infection? And oh, This is a very, very different uh, topic, uh, which... Uh, at some point, Arturo approached me and says, uh, asked me the following question. Is the fact that, uh, that between 27 degrees Celsius and 40 degrees Celsius, every one degree increase eliminates 6% of the fungal, popula- uh, fungal species. 
and what its relation to the fact that is this something that was a driving force for uh, mammalian uh, uh, hot bodies and if so what would be the optimum temperatures that we will arrive at so uh, he introduced me to this uh, question and it was uh, kind of something that bothered me for an afternoon so I decided to uh, do the back of the envelope calculation and if you take the benefit of reduction the ratio between the reduction of the number of species of fungi that can infect humans or can infect mammals relative to how costly it is to uh, acquire that uh, energy from Boltzmann type of calculation you take this ratio lo and behold you get an optimum independent of body size independent of Uh, the shape etc uh, you end up with uh, optimum at 36.7 degree so now this is kind of a very surprising and serendipitous result because we did not take into account all the effect of the immune system etc this is by far more this process is by far more complex but just to as a very quick uh, back of the envelope calculation to arrive at 36.7 degree was a sexy result and uh, it caught fire uh, people got interested in in this uh, paper more than actually I believe uh, not that it does not deserve but the complexity of the process is by far more than we put into it well I mean it, it certainly strikes me again you know to reference uh, Simon Dedeo and the conversation we had about the paper that he co-authored with Zach Wojtowicz on how you have a balance in the sciences between people who are seeking the simplest most parsimonious explanation and the most consilient or, or all-encompassing explanation and how you know other people have pointed to this in terms of a sweet spot in modeling it's you know it's a, it's a it's the sweet spot between the amount of time that you spend gathering data or, or running you know your computations and the simplicity and elegance of a model now your comment brings me back to what I said earlier about you Uh, the inadvertent pass that Darwin puts us on. It is not to discount the contribution that Darwin did by no means. Uh, he was the one who actually recognized that and he put that at the conclusion of the introduction of the first edition and ever since that natural selection is uh, only one of the processes that uh, are involved in uh, generation of variation and contributing to natural selection. Uh, he wrote that the history of science will prove uh, that the misrepresentation of his theory at that time is not going to be long endured and now it is about 163 years <laughs> and still people believe that natural selection is the one and only modes of modification and the powerful aspect of uh, evolutionary biology which I agree it is very powerful but he inadvertently put us on the path where we are worshiping diversity on the expense of probing for commonalities and uh, by that I mean 
if we take uh, uh, again Stephen Jay Gould's uh, questions uh, seriously, namely, if we were to play the tape again and again and again, what will remain in variance? This question actually is to a large extent foreign to biologists. Because biologists like to think about what are the differences between a potato and a tomato, between case and control, between disease and healthy, not knowing what's common. And this is something which is uh, need to be rethought and uh, arrived at something that uh, uh, may cause the tradition of biologists, to think more like a physicist, to think about commonalities rather than the diversity. And it is actually apparent not only in the way of thinking, but also in the technology which we are building. We are building technology to look for gene differential expression, methylation differential expression, RNA differences, etc. It's all about the difference between a potato and a tomato, not about what commons between the two of them. So this kind of goes towards uh, your argument. Yeah, and so at this point, you know, sensitive to time, you know, I want to bridge kind of a Hail Mary pass here. <laughs> it's a long bridge, but I, I want to bridge into uh, the vision statement that you, you circulated on the Albert Einstein Institute for Advanced Studies in Life Sciences, where you are the guy in charge of this, this new place. And the statement that you made in here, which I think folds everything that we've been discussing today into a bouquet, you say, science accepts rationality as the final judge of all alternatives. You mentioned that Kuhn points out that even the most rigorous empiricism must rest on some basis that determines what counts as admissible evidence. There is no such thing as an undeniable reality, no way to get outside of one's beliefs. This so-called common groundlessness is what makes the conflict between obedience and transgression a non-problem. So, you know, in thinking about this, I've asked, contrary to the rhetoric of people like Richard Dawkins, to whom we owe much, I don't. I don't know personally if there really is quite the qualitative difference between religious fundamentalism and modern empirical thinking in as much as both of them ultimately default to something like a sacred text. The difference being that fundamentalists leap to consult the King James version or whatever, whereas when we run in the modern world, we run a scientific investigation, we default to the five senses, in spite of the fact that we know there are more than five senses. And so again, we get to this question of the forces that govern a sweet spot. And that's where I felt like there was a connection between the paper that you wrote on endothermy and the resistance of a body to fungal infection with the resistance of an academic domain to infection, quote unquote, by some new idea. So how much patience do we have for the expansion of our sacred texts with you know non-canonical additions? Anyway, that's an insane rant, but I think like this is my invitation to you to talk a little bit about the justification and the motivation for forming this institute and what you're hoping to accomplish there. Before going there, there is a difference between 
religion and science in the following way. Not that science is not based on a web of set of beliefs. But in religion and in some aspect, for example, of philosophy, the closer you are to the origin, the better you are. The closer you are to the original scripture, the more quote-unquote genuine you are. Science, even though it is based on set of beliefs, today's science or nature or cell or any journal's paper can obviate what's been done in the past. And the set of beliefs are malleable. And this is where changes of paradigms, changes of the way of thinking actually differentiate what we do in the scientific realm as opposed to what we do in the religious realm. So this is the difference between the two, but on a daily basis, since a scientist is working within a certain paradigm, the actual activity may look very much the same in terms of the practical activity of us scientists. Now, the rationale between creating this Institute for Advanced Studies in the Life Science at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which I have to give credit to our dean that allow me to do something of that nature, which is fairly unique, not only among uh, uh, medical institutions, which I am embedded within, but also in other academic institution, is to allow, it is to create a platform to allow people to sit back and think about problems we still do not have tools to address. There is a great field medalist, Terry Tao, who said in his blog once that during the education process of a mathematician, a person has to go through three stages. Pre-rigorous, where you have an intuition, you wave your hands, but this is where things remains. The rigorous stage, where you learn how to prove theorems. And the post-rigorous, where you go to the intuition, you wave your hands, knowing that you can fall back on the rigorous aspect and prove whatever intuition it is that we have. Life science, for the most part, there are pockets here and there, is pre-rigorous, which is not a bad thing to be at, but it is a place where tools that are not necessarily related to physics, mathematics, modeling, etc., computer science are helpful at the initial stages. Other tools like generation of narrative, close readings, historicity, that require much longer gestation time to create prior to jumping into a development of this or the other mathematical tool, this or the other model, that is going to reflect the phenomena that you have observed. These tools are tools that are foreign to most scientists. And these are the bread and butter of the humanists. So the idea behind the institute 
is to bring together humanists, artists, and scientists, not in order to create science-inspired art piece, but rather to bring back the privilege that we, the scientists, have deprived the humanities from. Pick their brain and learn from them how actually they do their job when they analyze a text, when they analyze the historical event, when they read a poem, in order for us to look at the problems, the big problems, that we have no tools to address as of yet, to look through a very different lens. This might help us push the envelope towards the rigorous stage, where we will be able to potentially develop new mathematical tools, new physical tools, new modeling processes that will enable us to address those questions that cannot easily be addressed today. And there are many problems that in life science, and when I say life science, I look at it really broadly. Now, cognitive science, now cognition is part of that. Development is part of that. And other aspects of life science issues that are not being addressed due to the fact that Now, everybody and their spouses are looking at the molecular level, not at the bigger picture, are being neglected. And the goal of the Institute is to bring these new methodologies to a scientific inquiry. And I hope to be able to attract philosophers, mathematicians, historians, architects, musicians, etc., to teach us how they think in order to push the envelope in areas that we are just having baby steps. It won't happen in my lifetime, but it is a worthwhile exercise to push the envelope in. Well, I mean, I, I just think of episode 55, I had James Evans on talking about social computing and how he seeks to use machine learning to augment our ability to search the space of possible questions and identify unexplored areas between disciplines where you can drop people that are naive to one another's expertise into the middle and explore these sort of blind spots that we don't recognize. You know, I think, um, again, there was, I talk about this on the show a lot, just about how, you know, what, what you're getting at really connects that institute with this one in as much as fundamental research is historically immensely hard to fund because there's no obvious immediate benefit because the whole point is you're coming up with something new that's still illegible to the economy. It, you know, it has no obvious return. And, and so again, you know, this question of, you know, yes, thank the Dean, right. For being willing to, to make a long bet on this stuff, because as you point out in your writing on the goals of this Institute, that so many of the, the major paradigm shifts of the past, including Newton's theory of gravity, Darwin's theory of evolution, Einstein's theory of relativity, relied on thought experiments that may have initially appeared, in your words, fanciful and imprecise. And, you know, so just, you know, we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, 2022 SFI journalism fellow Dan Falk wrote a great piece on this a few years ago on, on thought experiments and how it's easy to mistake these as totally unempirical. But in fact, your ability to run these kinds of thought experiments depends on internalized models of the environment that have 
developed in you over evolutionary or what you call somatic time. That in a way it is actually a, a, a sort of deeper, if less formal and imprecise kind of empiricism. Yeah, it is. We tell ourselves narratives. So why don't we ask the professionals who create narratives for their livings teach us how to do that? And I think uh, most of those uh, you know, paradigm shifts and uh, major advances in science occur first and foremost as started as a narrative, as a storytelling to oneself about what it is that they are looking at. So yet in your vision statement, you say, as, as regards narrative, that you want to offer a story about human beings alienated, not from higher authority in the modern world, but from rather a meaningful and fulfilling relationship with community. And again, something that comes up on the show a lot is Wendy Carlin and Sam Bowles writing on how shocks to economies of scale and to the responsivity of the state by things like COVID-19 seem to remove the oppressive superstructure of these enormous networks and allow the human scale to return, you know, the, what they call the civil society, mutual aid networks, neighborhood organizations, and everything. Suddenly, we had externalized all of these things into the convenience of just depending on state authority or on market dynamics to solve these things for us. But that, again, you know, when we are challenged by a sudden uptick in environmental instability, that all of a sudden we remember why it is that we needed things like the family or the guild. Uh, you are absolutely right. But again, I would not claim to stretch what it is that I'm doing to that level. What I was talking about in the, in the vision statement with respect to going back to community is only within the academic environment. Now, the academic environment does not exclude intellectuals that come from outside of academia. I don't think that academia, as it is uh, defined today, is the right, uh, the right form of uh, uh, intellectual, even scientific activity. Uh, we should include other communities, like communities of writers, communities of poets, communities of musicians communities of architects, communities of choreographers. These are the type of people that I think we can, we as scientists can, can learn a lot from in questions, again, that we have no clue as to how even to begin address. And we have them. This is perhaps a great place to tie a bow on this, which is in a statement that you make about the meta problems you want to examine with this institute. You say, currently our politics are marked by a crisis of trust in scientific truth. We can begin to address such a crisis by clarifying our own understanding of what constitutes truth and admissible evidence and how to effectively and ethically communicate uncertainty. And this is where I just want to nod and tip my hat to Stuart Firestein and, and the community lecture he just gave on what he sees as a, the virtues of uncertainty and, and the questions of how we can make more space for that. And as someone 
grew up in Israel and it was you know surrounded by the sort of kibitzing you know this this ongoing rabbinical process of sense making that you know goes very deep into history then yeah I'd just love to hear you speak for a moment on how you think about that and on the open questions and yeah maybe we could just leave people with a big illustrated or illuminated embellished question mark this is a great challenge that you put in front of me when we get when scientists get their degree what they get and not only scientists when you arrive at a certain stage in your life uh, you get a license to ask question no matter what how big the question is and to not know the answer to that question scientists should thrive on ambiguity and uncertainty without it we are doing engineering not that engineering is bad but it's different from science science is an activity inherently that puts you in an ambiguous and in uncertain situation you are looking in an to pave a, a path that first and foremost you do not know where it leads and if you are even more daring not to follow a path that other have created but to go to a completely uncharted area and to ask whatever big questions you are asking you are interested in asking and i believe that this is not the characteristics of a scientist or a scientist alone this should be the characteristics of every intellectual in our society to be not only comfortable but thriving and seeking to be in ambiguous and uncertain situation so if there will be a big questions that i would like to ask is what would be the mechanism by which we change the views of our society about what is the role of a scientist in this society and not necessarily to ask and when i say scientist i include in it all those other discipline that i have introduced in this uh, institute musicians etc these are kind of scholars the role of scholars in our society and what type of funding mechanism should be in place other than the standard mechanism that are currently driven by the political arena so in my view what we need to create and i do not know how to do that is to create the equivalent of a scientific french revolution that will enable us to do things like what we are proposing without thinking that this is at the fringe of science because this is the in my view 
one of the only ways, and this is where Santa Fe Institute is really good at, this is the only way by which we will address the next generations of issues, because past generations issues can be transferred into the engineering style stuff, can be in passed into creating something which is beneficial to human being immediately. The rest of our activity should focus on how to create what will be beneficial in the next decade, in the next millennium for human condition. That would be a really potent place to end it, but because you brought up the issue, I just have to pin on this, if you'll indulge me, because I've had this conversation with, with David Krakauer too. This is something that keeps me up at night. We talk about this in the Facebook group actually quite a bit, or have, this issue of funding and why it is that we run into these political issues and what, in spite of the spirit and the mission and identity of science, as you've articulated it here, as many have, this issue of why certain questions are are unfundable. And it seems like it may have something to do with like the problem of prestige. Like if you, if you think about Mirta Galasic and the conversation I had with her about the way that people can form their own voting intentions to match their compatibility with friends and family, you know, so that, you know, they, people wanted to vote for, for instance, for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election until they realized that they would be excommunicated from their family groups if they if they didn't vote for Trump. Uh, and so it seems like something something similar goes on the more beholden researchers or academic institutions are to the protection of their reputation. And so I'm curious what you think about the opportunity for pseudonymous and decentralized funding through stuff like, you know, there's this DSI movement going on in blockchain space now to offer people the opportunity to basically crowdfund innovative research without having their names attached to it. And I'm wondering if you think that that's the kind of thing you're talking about here. This is one possibility. The other possibility, which is even more feasible in the short term, is the following observation. When I send a proposal to the NIH or to NSF or wherever, it is evaluated by my peers, by the same scientists that I am communicating with on a regular basis outside of the funding institution. But nevertheless, the system is such that those individuals who are in charge, myself included, when I'm on study sections, etc., the system is such that it lowers the bar to the lowest common denominator, not allowing things that are outside of the current existing paradigm to be funded. So the NIH funds areas and proposals that for the most part have already been done. And the certainty of success is really high. There is very little mechanism by which you can submit a proposal where you do not have preliminary data that shows the results that, of what it is that you are going to investigate. And I think it is up to us, the people in the study section, to create, quote-unquote, this 
scientific French Revolution and to change the criteria of what constitutes a valuable scientific inquiry. The fact that what I ask has already been answered is not necessarily the criteria for the value, even if that finding is really significant finding. Now you can publish it, find something that you do not know the answer to. I mean, well, this gets to conversations like the one I've had with our fellow Cole Mathis about what it would take to stage a coordinated walkout on pay-gated peer-reviewed journals, right? It's something we, we talked about earlier in the, in the conversation about, you know, we were thinking about canalization and the tension between individuals and, and institutions. It's like, you know, everyone may want this. But how do you actually like unionize if, if, if this is the kind of thing you're talking about? I do not have the answer to. You know, earlier today, I approached you and I told you I'm depressed. <laughs> there is a reason for that. And this is one of the reasons, talking about journals. I'm in, in interactions with a reputable journal about a certain publication that... Uh, regardless of the quality of the results, it is so far away from what is the current norm or not the current, the current way of thinking about the problem that the reviewers sometimes have no bandwidth on one hand and time to go deep enough in order to evaluate whether or not this is a valuable result. It's very easy to dismiss something. It's not easy to take the time and invest in something you have no clue, at least initially, prior to receiving the manuscript or receiving the proposal. The reward system reflects our values. And I think this is a big sociological issue that I don't allow myself or I don't have the audacity to claim uh, that I know how to solve. But I think it's worth thinking about. And if this, the uncertainty issue, how to communicate, is going to be part of my institute, if we were to arrive at a baby step at addressing it, I will be thrilled. It certainly seems like a, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. You know, how do we afford ourselves more time for these conversations? And at any rate, I'm I'm grateful that we've been afforded the time to have this one. And no, me too. I I'm really grateful to to you and to the institute for ho- hosting me for the last six or seven months. Uh, It's been a pleasure being here. Indeed. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.